Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 11, The Lombards Last Linger in the Limelight. So, before we took a break to have a look at the recent Italian elections, and if you're interested, by the way, we're still not quite sure what we're going to do with those, we had left the king of the Lombards, Aistulf, with his army all reformed and ready, threatening the Pope with huge demands. The Pope in question, we said, was Stephen II, and it didn't take him long to realise that talks with the Lombards were going nowhere fast. So, he turned to the Franks. Now, the last time a Pope looked in that direction, Charles Martel had been their leader, and he had had good relations with the then Lombard king, Liutprand, to whom he owed a couple of favours. Now, the leader of the Franks was a man named Pepin, and he had no debt of gratitude, and he was not friends with the Lombards. What's more, Pepin was the adopted son of Liutprand, whose son had been usurped by Aistulf's family, so no love lost there. In addition to this, Pepin, who was trying to create some legitimacy for his new regime after his family had done away with the Merovingians, needed the Pope as an important religious figure and source of authority. This time, when the Pope came knocking on the Franks' door, they were more than ready to help. The meeting between Stephen II and Pepin took place on the 6th of January, 754. There was a lot of groveling on the ground, first Pepin and then the Pope. Then some crowning went around with uh, both the Frankish king and his two young sons, Charles and Carloman, getting crowned as well. Then there was a bit of excommunicating here and there of some Frankish enemies, including the Lombard king Aistulf himself. At the whole shindig, there was also Pepin's wife, Bertrada, who very interestingly went down in history as having one foot longer than the other. Fun fact there. Anyway, Pepin, now a bit more officially kingy of the Franks, was uh, all for war with the Lombards, but he did try the diplomatic approach first. But Aistulf was having none of it. Not all the Frankish nobles were on board. They had a big assembly called the Placito, in which the king tried to convince his nobles to go to war. Things got very heated. Insults flew, with the king also being insulted for his height. Apparently he was only about one metre fifty. I can just imagine it, can't you? Pippin saying something like, We must go to war against the Lombards. And then the general saying, no, we don't want to go to war. And then Pippin saying something like, don't be such wimps. And then them saying, well, you're short. Anyway, at a certain point, the worst of insults was hurled at the king. He was called a coward. At this point, he had a lion and a bull dragged into the assembly. The animals fought against each other for a while, and when they were good and tired, Pepin invited the general who had offended him to go in and finish the animals off. When the general hesitated, Pepin himself did the deed, and that was that. It was time for war. 
In the spring of 755, Pepin took an army down into Italy and easily defeated Aistulf in the Susa Valley and laid siege to Pavia, where the Lombard king had fled to. The jig was up. Aistulf was forced to lay off Rome and give the Pope the lands, the Exarchate, an area around the city of Ravenna, belonging in the past to Byzantium. The important thing, the very important thing, was that he gave them to the Pope. The authority that Byzantium had had over the Exarchate and the Duchy of Rome was a thing of the past. The Papal States were here. We'll talk more about what came to be known as the Donation of Pepin in the episode on the Church, as well as the Donation of Constantine, which was cleverly made up in this period. So, Aistulf had been taught a lesson. But it turns out that he wasn't a great student. Indeed, Pepin hadn't even got back home before frantic letters starting arriving from Stephen to inform him that not only was Aistulf not respecting the agreement and not handing over the land to the Pope, but he was once again threatening Rome herself. This must have caused quite a bit of panic because it seems that some of the letters bore the signature of St. Peter himself. Pepin was not at all amused. He came back over the Alps, defeated the Lombards again, and this time made them cough up a third of the royal treasury as well as the lands promised the first time around. Would Aistulf learn his lesson this time around? Would he behave? Sort of. In the year 756, Aistulf died in a hunting accident, and nothing makes it hard to go back on a treaty like dying. His succession showed how much the political situation had changed. The Lombards were digging around the monastery of Monte Cassino, and out of there popped our old friend Ratkis. He was the guy who had been convinced by the Pope to give up being king after his brother Aistulf had been put in his place. Now he was back again, the choice of a Lombard faction who had continued to support him. Was he ready now? Was he going to put his foot down and stick it to the Pope and to the Franks? Not really. The Lombards were no longer really free to elect who they wanted, and the Pope and the Franks wanted the Duke of Brescia, Desiderius. So, once again, the Pope convinced Ratkis to turn around and head back to his monastery, and in 757, Desiderius became the undisputed king, promising to uphold the agreement reached with the Franks and with the Pope. Down south, Spoleto and Benevento, the two more independently-minded duchies, had taken advantage of the situation of the last years of the reign of Aistulf to try and get back the autonomy they had lost. Indeed, Spoleto, which had been directly ruled by the king, elected a new duke, Albuin, and young Lutprand, with the regency of John in Benevento, sided with the Franks and the papacy. Desiderius made a pact with the Byzantines that allowed him to march down unopposed and replace the new Duke of Spoleto and also topple Jutprand in Benevento, replacing him with his own son-in-law, Arecchi. As always, don't worry too much about remembering the names of all the dukes. To help consolidate his power all over, Desiderius cleverly used the monasteries. As those of you who have any interest in medieval history may know, 
At this point in time, monasteries held a lot of land, wealth, and power. When he had still been Duke of Brescia, Desiderius had founded a monastery, San Salvatore, near Brescia, with his wife Ansa, and they had put their daughter, Anselperga, in charge. Now he was king. He placed a series of other monasteries under the authority of his daughters, creating a network that stretched from Lombardy to Emilia and to Tuscany, a federation under his direct control. Things also went quite well on the diplomatic front. In the same year he was made king, Pope Stephen II died. To inaugurate the new reality of a papacy with actual official power, there was a struggle to elect the new pope, with actual fighting in the streets of Rome. After all, the stakes were higher now. In the end, the brother of Stephen, Paul, was elected. However, the sign of factional struggles that would plague the city and the papacy for centuries to come were very evident. Desiderius managed to take advantage of the situation and try to avoid further intervention from the Franks by appeasing the Pope with small concessions, such as giving back the city of Ferrara, but still holding back some of the more important territorial gains. Thanks to all of this wheeling and dealing, after the decline in the last period of the previous reign, Desiderius was able to bring back the Lombard kingdom to its maximum strength. This was topped off symbolically when in 759 the king raised his son Adelchi to the throne, thus securing a succession that in Lombard history had always been a little bit shaky at best. Desiderius was able to reign more or less peacefully for more than ten years, and was even able to turn things around in 767 when he was the one to meddle in the election of the Pope. Indeed, in 767 Pope Paul died and, by sending an army to Rome to sit around and convince the city to elect a man from the pro-Lombard faction, Philip, Desiderius was able to get his way. However, Philip gave in to the ensuing violence and resigned the very same day and Pope Stephen III was elected. Desiderius hadn't gotten his man on the throne of St. Peter, but he had shown that his influence could reach not only into the Papal States, but within the walls of the city of Rome itself. As if all of this wasn't good enough, it seemed that the situation with the Franks would also be resolved in the Lombards' favour, and potentially for a long time. Pepin the Short, King of the Franks, died in the year 768, dividing up his kingdom between his sons Charles and Carloman. As is often the case in these sort of successions, the two brothers were not thrilled about sharing power, and it seemed like a civil war could eventually engulf the newly formed Carolingian dynasty. It was the authoritative figure of the new king's mother, Bertrada, who saved the situation. Remember her? The one with the one foot that was longer than the other? Anyway, she moved in hastily to try and sort something out internally, and while she was at it, she also secured things with the Lombards, with some good old-fashioned marriage alliances. The daughter of the Lombard king, possibly called Ermengarda or Desiderata, and we'll talk about the name in a sec, married Charles, 
while the son of the Lombard king Desiderius, the son being Adelchi, was promised to Gisela, Pepin's daughter and Charles and Carloman's sister. The name of Desiderius's daughter is an interesting little historical fact. Indeed, contemporary medieval sources didn't allow us to know her name, having the young lady been subjected to the condemnatio memoria, in short, condemnation of the memory, for reasons we'll see in the next episode. So one name she could be referred to is Desiderata, but that seems that it may have come from an error in transcription in the 19th century that in truth was simply supposed to be Desideratam Filiam, desired daughter. Yet another name she is referred to is Berterada, Berterada. That comes from a monk called Andrea da Bergamo, but apparently he's not that reliable, and he also wrote later in the ninth century. The name we're going to use is Ermengarda, Ermengard, you could say, which seems to have been made up by the writer Alessandro Manzoni in the 19th century in his book Adelchi, which we'll talk about in the next episode. In short, from having no name at all, the girl had three. Anyway, there was Desiderius. He'd consolidated his power over the Lombards, including Spoleto and Benevento, and thanks also to the use of his federation of monasteries. He had the Pope in check, and now he had even sorted out the situation with his dangerous neighbours, the Franks. The cherry on top came in 770 when he took Istria, the peninsula to the east of Italy, on which today the country owns a bit and the other bits are shared by Slovenia and Croatia. This was the very last part of the ex-Byzantine exarchate and it meant that the empire now no longer had any possessions in the north. Desiderius was sitting pretty. Everything was fine and dandy. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we'll see next time. Until then, thank you very much as always for listening. Remember that if you have any comments or questions, you can get in touch via email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. On the same URL website, you can have a look and click through to our Facebook page or go and see our YouTube channel with our documentaries on Italian cities. Please remember to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review because that does wonders in the iTunes magical placement thing. And until next time, thanks again and arrivederci. Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.